Section nineteen of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. A gentleman who had been very unhappy in marriage married immediately after his wife died. Johnson said it was the triumph of hope over experience. He observed that a man of sense and education should meet a suitable companion in a wife. It was a miserable thing when the conversation could only be such as whether the mutton should be boiled or roasted, and probably a dispute about that. He did not approve of late marriages, observing that more was lost in point of time than compensated for by any possible advantages. Footnote. It is dangerous for a man and woman to suspend their fate upon each other at a time when opinions are fixed and habits are established, when friendships have been contracted on both sides, when life has been planned into method and the mind has long enjoyed the contemplation of its own prospects. Rasselas, chapter 29, into footnote. Even ill-assorted marriages were preferable to cheerless celibacy. Of old Sheridan he remarked that he neither wanted parts nor literature, but that his vanity and quixotism obscured his merits. He said foppery was never cured, it was the bad stamina of the mind which, like those of the body, were never rectified. Once a coxcomb, and always a coxcomb. Being told that Gilbert Cooper called him the Caliban of literature, well, said he, I must dub him the Punchinello. Footnote. Malone records that Cooper was round and fat. Dr. Wharton, one day, when dining with Johnson, urged in his favour that he was at least very well informed and a good scholar. Yes, said Johnson, it cannot be denied that he has good materials for playing the fool, and he makes abundant use of them. Prize Malone, end of footnote. Speaking of the old Earl of Cork and Orrery, he said, That man spent his life in catching at an object, in square brackets, literary eminence, which he had not power to grasp. To find a substitution for violated morality, he said, was the leading feature in all perversions of religion. He often used to quote with great pathos those fine lines of Virgil. Optima quaeque dies miseris mortalibus aevi prima fugit, subeunt morbi tristisque senectus et labor et dura rapit inclementia mortis. Footnote. In youth alone unhappy mortals live, but ah, the mighty bliss is fugitive. Discoloured sickness, anxious labours come, and age, 
and death's inexorable doom. Dryden, Virgil, Georgics. In the first edition, Dr. Maxwell's Collectania ended here. What follows was given in the second edition in Editions Received After the Second Edition Was Printed, Volume 1, page 5, end of footnote. Speaking of Homer, whom he venerated as the prince of poets, Johnson remarked that the advice given to Diomede by his father, when he sent him to the Trojan War, was the noblest exhortation that could be instanced in any heathen writer, and comprised in a single line. Ion aristo ion kai hupairochon emena alon which, if I recollect well, is translated by Dr. Clarke thus, Semper apetere praestantissima et omnibus alius antecellere, footnote, to Glaucus, Clarke's translation is, ut semper fortissime rem gererem et superior virtute esem alius, Iliad, book 6, line 208. Cooper's version is, that I should outstrip always all mankind in worth and valour. End of footnote. He observed, it was a most mortifying reflection for any man to consider what he had done compared with what he might have done. He said, few people had intellectual resources sufficient to forego the pleasures of wine. They could not otherwise contrive how to fill the interval between dinner and supper. He went with me one Sunday to hear my old master, Gregory Sharp, preach at the temple. Footnote. Maxwell calls him his old master, because Sharp was master of the temple when Maxwell was assistant preacher. Croker, end of footnote. In the prefatory prayer, Sharp ranted about liberty as a blessing most fervently to be implored, and its continuance prayed for. Johnson observed that our liberty was in no sort of danger. He would have done much better to pray against our licentiousness. One evening at Mrs. Montague's, where a splendid company was assembled, consisting of the most eminent literary characters, I thought he seemed highly pleased with the respect and attention that were shown him, and asked him on our return home if he was not highly gratified by his visit. No, sir, said he, not highly gratified. Yet I do not recollect to have passed many evenings with fewer objections. Though of no high extraction himself, he had much respect for birth and family, especially among ladies. He said, Adventitious accomplishments may be possessed by all ranks, but one can easily distinguish the born gentlewoman. He said, The poor in England were better provided for than in any other country of the same extent. Footnote. Dr. T. Campbell, in his survey of the south of Ireland, writes, In England the meanest cottager is better fed, better lodged, and better dressed than the most opulent farmers here. 
He did not mean little cantons or petty republics. Where a great proportion of the people, said he, are suffered to languish in helpless misery, that country must be ill-policed and wretchedly governed. A decent provision for the poor is the true test of civilization. Gentlemen of education, he observed, were pretty much the same in all countries. The condition of the lower orders, the poor especially, was the true mark of national discrimination. When the Corn Laws were in agitation in Ireland, by which that country had been enabled not only to feed itself, but to export corn to a large amount, Sir Thomas Robinson observed that those laws might be prejudicial to the corn trade of England. Footnote. In the Viceroyalty of the Duke of Bedford, which began in December 1756, in order to encourage tillage, a law was passed granting bounties on the land carriage of corn and flour to the metropolis. Leckie's History of England. In 1773 4, a law was passed granting bounties upon the export of Irish corn to foreign countries. Ibid. End of footnote. Sir Thomas, said he, you talk like a savage. What, sir? Would you prevent any people from feeding themselves, if by any honest means they can do it? Footnote. Lord Kames, in his Sketches of the History of Man, published in 1774, says, In Ireland to this day goods exported are loaded with a high duty, without even distinguishing made work from raw materials, corn, for example, fish, butter, horned cattle, leather, etc., and that nothing may escape all goods exported that are not contained in the book of rates pay five per cent ad valorem these export duties were selfishly levied in what was supposed to be in the interest of england End of footnote. it being mentioned that garrick assisted dr brown the author of the estimate in some dramatic composition no sir said Johnson, he would no more suffer Garrick to write a line in his play than he would suffer him to mount his pulpit. Footnote. At this time, in square bracket 1756, appeared Brown's Estimate, a book now remembered only by the allusions in Cooper's Table Talk, in square brackets Cooper's Poems, and in Burke's Letters on a Regicide Peace, Payne's Burke. It was universally read, admired, and believed. The author fully convinced his readers that they were a race of cowards and scoundrels, that nothing could save them, that they were on the point of being enslaved by their enemies, and that they richly deserved their fate. Macaulay's Essays Dr. J. H. Burton says, Dr. Brown's book is said to have run to a seventh edition in a few months. It is rather singular that the edition marked as the seventh has precisely the same matter in each page and the same number of pages as the first. Life of Hume Brown wrote two tragedies, Barbarossa and Athelstan, both of which Garrick brought out at Drury Lane. In Barbarossa, Johnson observed, 
that there were two improprieties in the first place the use of a bell is unknown to the mahometans and secondly otway had told a bell before dr brown and we are not to be made april fools twice by the same trick murphy's garrick brown's vanity is shown in a letter to garrick garrick correspondence written on january the nineteenth seventeen sixty six in which he talks of going to st petersburg and drawing up a system of legislation for the russian empire in the following september in a fit of madness he made away with himself End of footnote. speaking of burke he said it was commonly observed he spoke too often in parliament but nobody could say he did not speak well though too frequently and too familiarly speaking of economy he remarked it was hardly worth while to save anxiously twenty pounds a year if a man could save to that degree so as to enable him to assume a different rank in society then indeed it might answer some purpose he observed a principal source of erroneous judgment was viewing things partially and only on one side as for instance fortune hunters when they contemplated the fortune singly and separately it was a dazzling and tempting object but when they came to possess the wives and their fortunes together they began to suspect that they had not made quite so good a bargain speaking of the late duke of northumberland living very magnificently when lord lieutenant of ireland somebody remarked it would be difficult to find a suitable successor to him then exclaimed johnson he is only fit to succeed himself footnote horace walpole writing in may seventeen sixty four says the earl of northumberland returned from ireland where his profusion and ostentation had been so great that it seemed to lay a dangerous precedent for succeeding governors memoirs of the reign of george the third he was created duke in seventeen sixty six for some pleasant anecdotes about this nobleman and goldsmith see goldsmith's miscellaneous works and forster's goldsmith End of footnote. he advised me if possible to have a good orchard he knew he said a clergyman of small income who brought up a family very reputably which he chiefly fed with apple dumplings he said he had known several good scholars among the irish gentlemen but scarcely any of them correct in quantity he extended the same observation to scotland speaking of a certain prelate who exerted himself very laudably in building churches and parsonage houses however said he i do not find that he is esteemed a man of much professional learning or a liberal patron of it yet it is well where a man possesses any strong positive excellence few have all kinds of merit belonging to their character we must not examine matters too deeply no sir a fallible being will fail somewhere talking of the irish clergy he said swift was a man of great parts 
and the instrument of much good to his country. Footnote. Johnson thus writes of him, works volume 8, page 207. The Archbishop of Dublin gave him at first some disturbance in the exercise of his jurisdiction, but it was soon discovered that between prudence and integrity he was seldom in the wrong, that when he was right his spirit did not easily yield to opposition. He adds, he delivered Ireland from plunder and oppression, and showed that wit confederated with truth had such force as authority was unable to resist. He said truly of himself that Ireland was his debtor. It was from the time when he first began to patronise the Irish that they may date their riches and prosperity. Ibid, page 319. Pope, in his Imitations of Horace, says, Let Ireland tell how wit upheld her cause, her trade supported and supplied her laws, and leave on swift this grateful verse engraved, The rights a court attacked, a poet saved. End of footnote. Berkeley was a profound scholar as well as a man of fine imagination, but Usher, he said, was the great luminary of the Irish church, and a greater, he added, no church could boast of, at least in modern times. We dined tete-a-tete at the Mitre, as I was preparing to return to Ireland after an absence of many years. I regretted much leaving london where i had formed many agreeable connections sir said he i don't wonder at it no man fond of letters leaves london without regret but remember sir you have seen and enjoyed a great deal you have seen life in its highest decorations and the world has nothing new to exhibit no man is so well qualified to leave public life as he who has long tried it and known it well. We are always hankering after untried situations and imagining greater felicity from them than they can afford. No, sir, knowledge and virtue may be acquired in all countries, and your local consequence will make you some amends for the intellectual gratifications you relinquish. Then he quoted the following lines with great pathos. He who has early known the pomps of state, for things unknown, tis ignorance to condemn, and after having viewed the gaudy bait, can boldly say, the trifle I contemn. With such a one contented would I live, contented could I die. Footnote, these lines have been discovered by the author's second son in the London magazine for July 1732, where they form part of a poem on retirement, copied with some slight variations from one of Walter's smaller poems entitled The Retirement. They exhibit another proof that Johnson retained in his memory fragments of neglected poetry. In quoting verses of that description, he appears by slight variation 
to have sometimes given them a moral turn, and to have dexterously adapted them to his own sentiments, where the original had a very different tendency. In 1782, when he was at Brighthelmstone, he repeated to Mr. Metcalfe some verses as very characteristic of a celebrated historian, in square brackets, Gibbon. They are found among some anonymous poems appended to the second volume of a collection frequently printed by Lintot under the title of Pope's Miscellanies. See how the wandering Danube flows, realms and religions parting, a friend to all true Christian foes, to Peter, Jack, and Martin. Now Protestant and Papist, now not constant long to either, at length an infidel does grow, and ends his journey neither. Thus many a youth I've known set out half Protestant, half Papist, and rambling long the world about, turn infidel, or atheist. Malone, end of footnote. He then took a most affecting leave of me, said he knew it was a point of duty that called me away. We shall all be sorry to lose you, said he. Laudo, Tarmin. Footnote, juvenile satires. Yet still my calmer thoughts his choice commend. Johnson's London, line three. End of footnote. End of section nineteen.